Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, we're following the Apostle Paul, this outstanding leader, church planter, evangelist, missionary, uh, apostle of the early church. We're following him uh, as he makes his way towards Jerusalem. Now, when, when we end our text this morning, Paul's going to be in Jerusalem, but the fireworks have not yet started. The fireworks start next time we're in the book of Acts. And oh man, the fireworks. But you need to see what happens leading up to this because it sets the stage and it teaches us something very powerful right in the text itself. Look at it here, starting at verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. So what you have here is virtually the travelogue, don't you? You have the points on the map moving from, where is it, from Miletus to Kaz to Rhodes to Patara, just following the way down the coast as they would sail in that day. And it's interesting, though, how he begins there in that very first verse of the chapter. It says, when we had departed from them. Now, we saw this the last couple of weeks. We saw this very heartfelt, emotional, passionate message that the Apostle Paul gave to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, right? I mean, he was just pouring out his heart to them. They poured out their hearts back to him. It says at the end, remember, they fell on his neck and they wept and they saw him off to the ship and it was just this very emotional, heartfelt thing. Well, that's sort of indicated by what it says in the first verse. When it says, when we had departed from them, literally in the ancient Greek, some people would translate it like this. When we tore ourselves away from them. In other words, they're holding, don't go, don't go. But Luke and Paul and the whole group, they, no, we've got to go. They tore themselves away from this very emotional departing. They got on the ship and they made their way southward and eastward towards Jerusalem. Now, verse 3. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, I think it's fascinating. They, again, make their way further east across the ocean. They're making their way across the Mediterranean Sea there. And they finally land at Tyre. And what does it say in verse 3? It says they landed at Tyre. And then verse 4 says they found disciples there. Now, you know what's wonderful about this? The book of Acts never tells us about any kind of missionary outreach or effort of church planting in the city of Tyre. Yet there were Christians there and a church there nonetheless. And to me, it just reminds me in sort of an exciting way, the book of Acts is an incomplete account. God was doing much more in the first century church than is recorded in the book of Acts. And I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind. The book of Acts is a very important picture of what was happening in the first century, but it's not comprehensive. There was an enormous work that happened outside of the boundaries of the book of Acts. Now, what does it say in verse 4? It says that the disciples in Tyre, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, all along the way, as Paul has been making his ways eastward across the Mediterranean world with his eventual destination in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to Paul all along the way, saying, trouble awaits you in Jerusalem. Trouble awaits you in Jerusalem. To where I think they were probably tired of hearing it. Now he hears it again and tired. Matter of fact, though, I would say so much so that the Holy Spirit told them of the trouble awaiting 
And friends, I'm going to throw a little bit of interpretation on this verse. I'm going to tell you right now. I believe that where it says that the command not to go up to Jerusalem was a human interpretation of the Holy Spirit's prophecy of the danger that awaited Paul. Look, I don't mean to get far into the weeds on this this morning, but I'm just going to throw this out to you. There's a pretty big divide among Bible scholars and commentators here. And the divide is this. Was Paul right in going to Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit warned him about trouble to come or was he not? Was he in obedience or was he in disobedience? In other words, it's very clear that the Holy Spirit warned him about trouble to come in Jerusalem, right? We've talked about that over and over again. Yet, was he right to go on ahead even though he knew trouble awaited him? There were people who told him, don't go. Nevertheless, sometimes people put a little, and I mean this in a very kind way, spin on what the Holy Spirit says, right? Now, it may be good, well-intentioned spin. It may be good-hearted spin. But there's oftentimes spin that people put on to what the Holy Spirit's saying. And the whole question is, was Paul in obedience or disobedience? Now, I'll just lay my cards right out on the table. I believe Paul was doing what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do. And I believe the Holy Spirit was telling him this to prepare him to go to Jerusalem, not to prevent him to go to Jerusalem. But yet the word was out there over and over again. Trouble is waiting for you. Trouble is waiting in Jerusalem. Look what happens again now in verse 5, where it says, And when we had all come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And when they all accompanied us, wives and children, till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when they had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. Notice again, verse 5, despite the very heartfelt pleas of the Christians entire, Paul said, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm sorry. This is what God wants me to do. I'm headed off there even though I'm fully aware of the dangers. Now, it's kind of interesting what it says in verse 5 and 6. It says there how they accompanied them out of the city. And this was a traditional thing that they would do in the ancient world. When sort of a distinguished or a beloved figure came to visit your city, When that figure left the city, the people, you know, his friends, his associates, his companions, they would walk with him until he was out of the city. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? You know, somebody comes and it's like you've got a whole fleet of cars driving him out of Santa Barbara, right? Just to honor him, just to be sort of like a motorcade as they leave, right? Just for that. That was a traditional thing. Christians did it. Those who were not Christians did it. But what's interesting, that was a traditional custom for the culture But what was not a traditional custom for the culture is what it says there in verses 5 and 6, where it says, excuse me, verse 6, where it says, we knelt down on the shore and prayed. That's Christian, right? The, 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 The pagans didn't do that. But can you picture that? Paul, together with his companions, all the people around there, they are kneeling down on the shore and praying. There's tears running down their faces because they know that danger is waiting for Paul. Nevertheless, he won't be deterred. He's going along the way. Verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. All right, my Google map thing got a full workout today because we've been going all the way from Miletus to Kaz to Rhodes to Patara to Tyre, now just south of Tyre to Ptolemaeus, this place, this city. And they come again. And notice again, it says there in verse 7, we greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. Now, I just can't think that this was not very rewarding to Paul and his companions 
that in almost every place they stopped, there was a Christian community. Isn't that just beautiful? They come to Tyre, okay, there's a bunch of Christians there to greet them. They come to Ptolemaeus, there's a bunch of Christians there to greet them. You know what they must be thinking? They must be thinking, it's working. The gospel is going out all over the world. Everywhere we go, there's a Christian community. Isn't it beautiful? And we connect with them. And it's just, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing that Paul was experiencing. I think beginning to taste some of the fruits of his labors, even though they weren't his labors directly, they were his labors tangentially. But anyways, they make their way south. Verse 8, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Okay, so now they make their way down south again, more on the Google Maps. They go make their way south down to Caesarea. Now, by the way, I, in just a couple of days, I'm going to be in Caesarea. And how great is that, right? Caesarea, pretty cool place. And to be there and to think of the Apostle Paul coming into that city. I mean, right there, you're on the very same water, the very same port where he comes in. And he comes into that thriving Christian community right there at Caesarea. And who does he go visit? He visits a man named Philip. Now, we've been introduced to Philip in Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 6. It introduced this man named Philip, who many people call him the deacons, one of the early servants of the church. But he doesn't have the title here, Philip the deacon. He's called Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. The last time we saw Philip was in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, where he spoke to the Ethiopian evangelist, the Ethiopian eunuch, I should say. He evangelized to him, and he preached through the coastal region after that, and he ended up in Caesarea. And many years later, he's still there living in Caesarea. And what a wonderful title, right? Philip the Evangelist. How did they know him? That's what was on his business card. Hi, I'm Philip, Philip the Evangelist. What a beautiful thing to be known by the good news that you give to other people. And that was Philip. That was just him. I know people like that, don't you? I know people who have just such a wonderful gift of evangelism. Now listen, I believe that God has some responsibility for each and every one of us to be evangelists, right? There are some people that just have a particular gift, but for each and every one of us, God has a purpose in our life to bring other people to Jesus Christ. Now think about it. We're still fairly new into the year. It's fairly new into February. And I just think, There's probably some people here and you've never led somebody else to Jesus Christ. You know, can I just say, without putting any pressure and manipulation on you, I would just say, why don't you pray that this is the year that God makes that happen for you? This is the year that you know the joy of leading somebody else to Jesus Christ. But you know what? There are some people for whom it is absolutely a regular occurrence. God just has a gift of evangelism on their life. And that was Philip to be sure. Notice what else is interesting here. Verse 9, now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And apparently, according to some ancient church traditions, these women lived to a very great age, and they were a very important source for getting out the news of who Jesus was and what he did in the early church there in that area of Caesarea, which was not far from Jerusalem. Now, he had these four daughters who prophesied, Yet when God wanted to speak something to Paul, he didn't use one of the four daughters. Look what happens in verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. I'm going to say first thing that just fascinates me. Paul is staying at the home with four daughters of Philip who prophesy, right? Yet when God wants to speak something, he brings in somebody from out of town, this fellow named Agabus, to come and deliver this prophecy. And I'm saying, what? You got four prophecy girls in the house. Why not use one of them? But I just want to say this just gives us a little sidelight point. How God speaks in ways up to his own determining, right? I mean, you and I would think, look, it's mo- why bother Agabus, right? you got four prophet girls there in the house. Let's just let one of them do it, right? And each one of them could deliver one quarter of the message. It would work great. But no, 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 no. God brought this fellow Agabus. You say, well, why? Listen, God alone knows, doesn't he? God has his own way. He has his own pattern. He has his own methods in speaking to people. And this is just how God does it. So we've got to be at peace with that. We've got to be at peace with the way that God does things in different ways. Nevertheless, don't miss the message that Agabus brought. Verse 10 tells us that the certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and very much in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets, he acted out his message to Paul. What did he do? He took Paul's belt, which might have seemed kind of weird. The prophet comes up and takes Paul's belt off. And then he binds his own hands with it and he goes, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt. Now, Paul didn't say, well, I just borrowed that belt from Luke the other day. No. (laughs) Paul said, no, that's my belt. I get the picture. I am going to be bound when I go to Jerusalem. Trouble is waiting for me. That's what it says in verse 11. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Now, listen. This prophecy of Agabus was true, and it was genuinely from the Holy Spirit. But listen, I want you to notice what they did. To this true word of prophecy, they added a word of human application. Look at verse 12. They pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now listen, that additional word, in my judgment, was not of the Lord. Otherwise, Paul would have been disobedient to go to Jerusalem. I want you to notice how intense it was. Verse 12 shows us that even Luke and Paul's traveling companions tried to persuade Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Look at what it says in verse 12. Both we, meaning Luke and his traveling companions, both we and those from that place pleaded with him. I got to say, this is remarkable, don't you? I mean, Paul's team, Luke and the rest, they're behind him all the way. They're behind him in Ephesus when he gets warned, trouble's awaiting in Jerusalem. They're behind him in Rhodes and Kos and Miletus all along the way. They're behind him in Tyre. They're behind him in Ptolemies. Finally, when they get to Caesarea and Agabus comes, they say, oh, for heaven's sakes, Paul, won't you just give up and not go? How many times does the Holy Spirit have to tell you? But Paul says, listen, the Holy Spirit has not told me not to go He's only told me the trouble is awaiting me, and the trouble doesn't bother me. I will go. You saw the statement that he makes right there, verse 13. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It's almost like 
Paul was a boxer or a, a mixed martial arts fighter that somebody thought they could intimidate by telling him how difficult the opponent was, right? But listen, when somebody's like that, you don't intimidate them by telling the opponent's difficult. That just motivates them all the more, right? You're telling me the trouble's waiting for me in Jerusalem? You're telling me that I might even die? Well, then let's do it. I'm ready for this. I am ready not only to be bound, but to die if necessary for the name of the Lord Jesus. He was bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And so I'll say it again. Those warnings of the Holy Spirit were meant to prepare Paul not to stop him. This tells me something very interesting about the Christian life and just sort of my experience of it. I don't know about your experience. Sometimes I wonder why God doesn't show me more about the future. There's a lot of you like that. You desperately want to know what God's future is for you. Matter of fact, I think if you ask people, if you just sort of dig beneath the surface a little bit, and you find out one of the things that they really want, God, what could you really tell me? What could you show me? I want to know God's will for my life. I want to know what the future holds. Well, have you ever thought that sometimes God doesn't show you or I the future because we don't have the same mentality that Paul has that no matter what, I'm going to serve and obey God no matter what the future holds. And I hate to put it in these words, but I guess I don't know how else how to put it, that God almost withholds any bad news in the future from us because we frankly don't know how we would handle it. Well, Paul, he could hear it. Paul heard of bad news in the future. I don't care. I am willing to not only be bound, but to die at Jerusalem. He, he chose to suffer this. Now, friends, I, I want to lay a quote before you from Oswald Chambers. It's really good. Listen to this. He says, to choose to suffer means that there's something wrong. Okay? Paul wasn't choosing to suffer, but he says this. But to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. Chambers goes on. He says, no healthy saint ever chooses suffering. Amen to that. But he chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. I think that's what God has for each one of us. Look, I'm not telling you to choose suffering, seek out after suffering. That's not what Paul was doing. But Paul said, listen, I'm going to do God's will, whether it involves suffering or not. Look, I, I just need to be very plain with you. There, there is an attitude among some people who are followers of Jesus, or at least consider themselves to be followers of Jesus, that basically their attitude is, I'll follow God as long as he gives me what I want. When God doesn't give me what I want, well, then let's renegotiate the contract. Can I lovingly but firmly tell you that is so wrong, that is so disgraceful to God because he's our Lord and he's our God no matter what his will for our life holds. And we need to pray that God would give us more of that heart of Job Listen, I've done a careful study of the book of Job. I know Job's ups and downs. I know sometimes he, he's at a height of faith, other times he's at the low. But at his height of faith, Job would say this, things like this, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That needs to be more and more our attitude. Look, if, if you discern 
that that's a little bit of your heart that where you would say, God, I'll follow you as long as you do what I want. I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit would deal with your heart and bring you to to not only a more mature faith, but to a more God-honoring faith. Instead, look at those precious words from verse 14. You saw them. The will of the Lord be done. Now, these were the words of Paul's companions, including Luke. They came to the understanding that God's will would be done. They came to trust that even if Paul was probably right, and and even if he was wrong, God would use it. Friends, this is how I see it. And I'm going to be honest with you. Not every biblical interpreter sees it the same way. But I'll just tell you how I see it. I see it that the warnings of danger came from the Holy Spirit and were meant to prepare Paul. The request to turn back was understandable. It was even logical. It was even well meant, but it wasn't from God. And I think that Luke and his companions, they recognized this much when they attributed Paul's insistence to go to Jerusalem. Despite the danger, they said his insistence to go to Jerusalem is the will of the Lord. Now, friends, isn't this an extremely easy thing for us to do? It's often easy and it's often a source of trouble. When we add our interpretation, when we add our application to what is thought to be a word from God. And we think that what we add to it is also the word from the Lord. I'll tell you something else that's common. Don't we often find it far too easy to judge God's will for somebody else? I'm really pretty good at that, right? I can always tell somebody else what God's will is for them, right? I can always tell somebody else that they need to be taking steps of faith. Now look, We need to bring the challenge back to us that oftentimes it's too easy for us to say that. It's too easy for us to think we can discern God's will for somebody else. But listen, they came to the settled heart. Luke and his companions, they came to the understanding that it was the will of the Lord. They said, the will of the Lord be done. Now, what's interesting is they said that about God's work in somebody else's life, which is often an even more difficult thing to do. Sometimes it's easier for me to say the will of the Lord be done in my life than it is for me to say the will of the Lord be done in somebody else's life. All right, on to verse 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Now, by the way, I just just want to stop right there. We packed and went up to Jerusalem. Now, on the one hand, I think, how silly. I mean, look, in a few days, I'm going to, how silly to record this. Every stop along the way, they packed and went, right? He didn't say, we packed and we went to Miletus. We packed and we went to Kos. We packed and we went to Tyre. He doesn't say that. But here from Caesarea, he says, we packed. And and I I hope I'm not discerning too much. But I just sense some of that travel excitement there, right? Luke is excited. And I'm picked. I can't say this for sure. But I'm wondering if this is not the first time that Luke has ever been to Jerusalem, right? And he's just excited. He's like, oh, man, I'm packing. I'm getting ready. Luke, you pack everywhere. You go, I know, but I'm packing and I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And he's just excited about it. Verse 15, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were supposed to lodge. And now they come into Jerusalem. Verse 17, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When they had greeted him, he told them in detail 
all those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. That's stopping in the middle of verse 20. Do you get the picture? They finally get up to Jerusalem and everybody's rejoicing. It's just beautiful. It's exciting. Luke is so excited to be in Jerusalem. They're all gathered together there. And Paul says, listen, the first thing I want to do is I want to meet with the leaders of the Christian community in Jerusalem. And the head of the Christian community in Jerusalem was James, the half-brother of Jesus, the same one who wrote the book of James. So here they go. They meet with James. They have a beautiful meeting with him. And not just him, but the elders. And I don't know who the elders were. It probably included some of the apostles, some of the people who had been with Jesus from the earliest days. There they are. They're all gathered together. And what happens there? Verse 19 says, He told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Guys, let me give you the ministry update, Paul says. And he says, let me tell you what God's doing in Corinth. And let me tell you what God's doing in Ephesus, right? Because they hadn't heard about Ephesus yet, or at least not from the lips of Paul. Let me tell you what God is doing in this place and in that place. And he told them all about these churches that had been planted, these churches that were thriving all over the Gentile world. And it was exciting. He gave them a full report of his work of preaching and planting churches among the Gentiles. By the way, where it says there, He told in detail in verse 19. The Greek word has the idea of recounting every single thing. I mean, I can just picture Paul at this meeting with the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Oh, and let me tell you this, and let me tell you this, and let me tell you this. He's excited and giving them every detail. And what's the reaction? You saw it at the beginning of verse 20 where it says this. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord. I I praise God for that, don't you? That the elders and the leaders in Jerusalem did not say, well, isn't it amazing that God might do something among the Gentiles? They didn't look their nose down at it. They glorified the Lord. They said, yes, this is good. The elders in Jerusalem were thankful for what God had done among the Gentiles. And matter of fact, Paul had some of these Gentile converts with him right there in Jerusalem. And they could look at these men. They could look at their lives and say, yes, God is doing a great work there. Now, in the middle of verse 20, things get complicated. Are you ready for the complications? Here we go. And they said to him, You see, brethren, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. That's good. They become Christians. And they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to their customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. All right, in the movie we're making about the book of Acts? Not actually, though. Look, if somebody wanted to give me the budget, I'd be the executive producer of it, right? And we'd put on a good movie, all right? But it'd have to be a big budget thing, right? I'm not doing it where, you know, when it says Paul was preaching to thousands, I'm not doing it where he's preaching to two dozen people. We're talking about epic, right? Millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to make this. But anyway, in the movie that goes in our head, now the background music gets ominous. Okay? Picture that in your mind. Can you hear it? Not exactly the theme from Jaws, but something like that. (laughs) The background music gets ominous here. They say at the end of verse 20, You see, brethren, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. The good news, they believe. 
And I'll say it again. They believe. They trust in Jesus as their Messiah. We would call them Christians. We would call them Christians from a Jewish background, but they are Christians. That's the good news. The more problematic news, right there, they're all zealous for the law. They still really love the law of Moses. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it all depends, right? But that's what makes it a little ominous here. Look at verse 21. I love the wording of this. They have been informed about you that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Now, stop right there. From what you know of the Apostle Paul, is that true or false? Absolutely. Very good. It's false. Paul didn't go around teaching the Jews that they should forsake Moses. Not at all. You see, the Christian community of of, of Jerusalem had heard bad, false rumors about Paul. They heard that he had essentially become anti-Jewish and that both Jewish Christians, or excuse me, that he told Jewish Christians that it was wrong for them to continue in Jewish laws and customs if they wanted to. Now, friends, without getting into it in great depth, I think that Romans 14, verses 6, 4 through 6, really express Paul's heart on this. That Paul didn't have a problem with Jewish believers who wanted to continue with their Jewish customs. Sometimes he did so himself, such as when he took a vow of consecration as recorded in Acts chapter 18, which was probably a Nazarite vow. Paul seemed fine with this. You want to keep your Jewish customs? Fine. As long as you don't think this makes you more righteous before God. I'll say it again. You want to keep those customs? Great. And friends, this applies to so many things. Do you want to keep Saturday as the Sabbath? Great. God bless you. Just don't think it makes you any more righteous before God. Do you want to observe a kosher diet? God bless you. Go for it. Personally, I would miss the lobster and the shellfish, but go right ahead. Listen. But I'll tell you this, don't think it makes you any more right before God. Because you know what makes you right before God? Not your observing of laws and rituals. Jesus Christ makes you right before God, right? What he did on the cross, the payment that he did on the cross is so big and so much greater than anything you or I could do in any of the observance of rites or rituals or anything like that, that there's just no comparison. But if, you, if you're persuading your heart that you want to keep it, great, do it, God bless you, more power to you. Just don't think it makes you any more right before God. You want to eat organic? Great. Do it. Wonderful. You think it's good for you, healthy? God bless you. It's wonderful. I support you all the way. Just don't think it makes you any more right before God. And so on and so on and so on. As long as that line is respected, no problem. Paul seemed fine with this. As he says in Romans 14, he says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. You want to do it? Great. Do it unto the Lord. You don't want to do it? Great. Then don't do it unto the Lord. That's the point. Now, verse 22, what then? The assembly must certainly meet because they have heard that you have come. This has the sense of this. Paul, this is controversial. People are going to hear that you're in town and there's a lot of bad rumors going on about you. So this is what you should do. Verse 23, therefore, do what we tell you. I was, that's a little creepy right there. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, 
but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. So here they say, okay, Paul, you want to demonstrate that you're not anti-Jewish? Great. This is how you do it. Take these four men, verses 23 and 24, take these four men who have taken the vow, take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses. Join with them in their vow of consecration and sponsor them in their vow of consecration. And that's what you can do. Why? Verse 24, so that all would know. Paul, do it to set the story straight, to let everybody know that you're not anti-Jewish. The Jerusalem elders believe that that would convince anyone that Paul did not preach against Jewish laws and customs for those Christians who wanted to observe them. So it all seems clear. Verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple. Is the movie going on in your mind, right? It's the next day. They're there at the temple. Entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Dot, dot, dot. Well, whatever will become of this scene on the Temple Mount. That's for the next time that we get together. All I can say is, oh, baby. (laughs) This is one of my favorite scenes from the book of Acts. What happens with Paul on the Temple Mount? And look, I'll just, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'll just say it anyway. Uh, Here's the plan. You're going to see this on video with me teaching from the temple, uh, going over this text. That'll be the next time where we pick it up in the book of Acts. From Jerusalem, not live over the gift of videotape, but we'll do this study at the temple area near the Temple Mount. And, uh, and it's just the perfect setting to do it. I can't believe how the timing just sets up perfect for this, right? <laughs> All right, but let's, let's come back to this. Paul took the men and he said, okay, let's go through the ceremonies. Now, I, I will tell you this. There are some commentators who believe that this was a terrible compromise on Paul's part, that he should not have done this. I don't agree. You know what I think Paul was doing? I think what Paul was doing, exactly what he said in 1 Corinthians 9.20. He said, and to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Paul says, I don't have a problem with these sermons. I know that they don't identify my righteousness in Jesus. Who cares? I'll do it. If it gives me more of an audience among the Jewish people, I'll do it. Because I know that these things are not for atonement, that these things are not. Even though it says right there in verse 26, at which time an offering should be made. It's very important for us to understand that this offering mentioned in verse 26. Friends, offering, animal sacrifice in all likelihood. It was not in any way for the purpose of atonement or forgiveness. You see, in the whole Jewish sacrificial system, not every offering or sacrifice was for atonement. There were offerings for dedication. There were offerings for thanksgiving. There were offerings for fellowship. This was in no way an offering for atonement because, friends, Paul understood. Paul taught us this, that only the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross atones for sin. And I don't want anybody to be in doubt in that this morning. If you think that your sin problem can be solved by some kind of ritual or ceremony, 
that you think your sin problem can be solved by church attendance or financial contributions or anything else like that or service within the church. No, your sin problem can only be made right before God by your trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's it. It's the blood that he poured out there. It was his life given for you. That is what solves your sin problem. So you have to believe it. You have to receive it. Now, this is the message that Paul was ready to go to Jerusalem for, to suffer for and to die for. Do you have something that big in your life? Is there anything in your life that you would suffer and die for? I hope so. You think, well, my family. Okay, good. That's good. I don't know what else there would be. Maybe you think, well, for my country. Okay, that's good. For your community. Okay, all that. Even bigger than that. I I pray that you would be among the millions on the earth right now who would gladly suffer and die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God helping me, I would be that same. And that's very distracting that a balloon just fell right down from our party. I had a much better view of it than any of you in this room. Well, friends, isn't this true, though? Of all the things that we think of that a person would be willing to suffer and die for, Paul, he was willing to suffer and die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for who Jesus was and what he did for us on the cross. So, friends, the will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done in my life. The will of the Lord be done in your life, in the life of those people outside of me. We'll trust God to do it, but we will trust it focused on Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And you just wait till we meet this whole situation again in the book of Acts. God will speak to you through that and through this this morning. Father, that's our prayer here. We say it before you, Lord. We just sort of breathe it out with peace in our heart to say, The will of the Lord be done. We're done, Lord. We're finished with trying to impose our will on you. We're tired of it, Lord. We're not going to try to escape your will, and we're not going to try to twist your arm to persuade you to our will. But, Lord, we say it as a prayer. We say it as a promise. We say it for ourselves. We say it for those that we love. The will of the Lord be done. Lord, we don't say it as a fatalistic statement. We say it, Lord, with the determination to see your will done in our life and in those around us. Do it, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for showing us your will and that you came to save men and women. You came to rescue us from the things we couldn't save ourselves from. We receive it now with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.